We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Matthew chapter number 14. Matthew chapter number 14. Now I want to speak to you tonight on the feeding of the 5,000 as recorded, beginning with verse number 15 in Matthew 14 tonight. And uh, there's some lessons in this unusual experience that I think we ought to draw and I feel we can glean a great deal of profit and a great deal of help from by considering these lessons tonight. And uh, so turn in your Bible, let's see what we have. Now, in chapter 13, I preached from verse number 57 in chapter 13 in the morning hour. And I reminded you that in this chapter, we have the seven parables, very important parables having to do with the kingdom of heaven. That's the church age from Calvary down to the uh, uh, second coming of Christ in power and great glory is a period of time designated the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus finished giving the parables, uh, that was when he had the experience down in Nazareth of Galilee, uh, when his own people uh, spurned him and were offended because of him, and his hands were tied, so to speak, and he could not do many wonderful works in their midst because of their unbelief. Now, in chapter number 14, uh, here is a recounting of an experience that's already taken place. Uh, when, when Herod heard that, that Jesus was doing these great and mighty miracles, the first conclusion that he came to was that John the baptizer had been resurrected from the dead and that John was back on the scene preaching and proclaiming and denouncing and condemning Herod. And Herod's conscience began to trouble him a great deal at the thought of John the Baptist back on hand to give him a lot of trouble and a lot of opposition. But what had happened? John had stood fearlessly to Herod and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. And Herod didn't like it, and his wife Herodias didn't like it. And from the moment John stood and brought that message to Herod, uh, Herod and Herodias did not give up until they had destroyed John the Baptist. Now, a little bit later on, there was a great birthday celebration in the palace of Herod, and I've had the privilege of visiting in the ruins of that palace there just above uh, uh, Samaria uh, in the land of Israel. And uh, there was a great ingathering of all the dignitaries throughout Israel to celebrate the birthday of this great occasion with Herod and with Herodias. And Herodias had a daughter whose name was Siloam, I believe the Bible tells us. And she danced before Herod and all of his drunken guests. Now you can imagine a great deal about that. I, most of us in this bill are not accustomed to anything like no doubt went on that night in that palace. I mean, we don't usually go to places like that. And uh, the most of us are, would be rather strange. We really don't imagine uh, some things that would go on in that kind of an atmosphere of revelry and of drinking. You know, when a person becomes inflamed by strong drink, they do irrational things and they do things that never under ordinary circumstances become guilty of. And this, this uh, shenanigan was in high force and they were having a great uh, time together when this young lady moved out and began to uh, dance in some exhorted way and, uh, and uh, some very lustful, enticing, sinful fashion. Uh, you can imagine, if your imagination is uh, uh, keen at all, you can imagine something of what might have gone on uh, as a result of that uh, infamous dance by Salone. Uh, before those wicked men gathered to celebrate with Herod. 
And Herod was so pleased by this young, beautiful lady until on the impulse of the moment, he said, I'll give you anything you desire. You've so satisfied my companions and my friends and you so danced before us until you make your request and I'll grant your request. Now, that was a very foolish thing for a king, a Roman governor, say to a young lady. But the young lady had already been instructed by mama to come and report that to mother. And she went right to her mother and told mother what Herod had promised. And, of course, Herodias, having been denounced by, by uh, John the Baptist, said, uh, You request the head of John the Baptist delivered to me on a charger. And when the young lady came back to Herod and made that report, Herod was grieved, and yet because of his word, and because of his company, the great crowd of people gathered in his palace to celebrate. He couldn't go back on his word. And so he had John in prison. He was then in prison. He sent for John and had his head brought. They executed John the baptizer and uh, brought that head on a charger and gave it to, to Herod. And Herod in turn delivered that to the wicked wife Herodias at the request of Siloam the daughter. Isn't that an awful thing? A gruesome sort of thing. Here's a, a night of laughter and merriment and dancing and reverie that turned into a bloody slaughter. And one of the best men, one of the greatest men that ever lived lost his life as a result of that drunken reverie in the palace of Herod on that uh, infamous night. You can almost see that a head of John the Baptist set up right on that charger with its bloody hair and gory expression. Uh, brought in and given to that wicked woman, and now uh, her revenge is satisfied. Uh, her fury has been satisfied. Her hatred for John the Baptist has now been satisfied. What an awful picture that is. And uh, Herod uh, killed and executed John. Now when the disciples of John heard about that, uh, they went and, and took the body, the beheaded body of John the Baptist and carried it out and buried that body in verse number 12. The disciples came and found the body and carried the body out and buried it and went and told Jesus. I like that. And I learned a lesson at that point that I want you to get tonight. You can always tell the Lord whatever problem you might got might have. I see these disciples bury carefully the body of John the Baptist and then they hurry down to where the Lord is and report to the Lord that John the forerunner has now been executed and his body has been buried. They went and told Jesus. What crises have you had in your life? What crises shall you have tomorrow? What crises shall you have next year? Not one of us know. But one thing all of us know, we can tell the Lord about our burdens, whatever they may be, however numerous they may be, or how terrible they may be, we can tell the Lord about our problems, can't we? Take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. They went and told Jesus what had happened. Well, what did the Lord do when he found out? In verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. Now imagine the Lord wanted a solitary place where he could meditate. After all, John was a relative. John is the forerunner. John is the one sent of God to do exactly what John did. John chapter 1 verse 6, there was a man sent from, John who, uh, from God whose name was John. 
And I'm sure that the Lord had great esteem and respect for John the Baptist. And when he heard that he was dead and his body was buried and the gruesome, terrible story of how he was executed, he said, I, I want to I get alone and think and meditate and no doubt grieve. I'm sure the heart of our Lord was moved in real compassion upon the death of John the Baptist. You remember one time uh, in, in John chapter number 10, how, chapter 11 it is, how Jesus wept with Martha and Mary over the passing of Lazarus, who was only a friend and not a relative, who was only a friend and not a forerunner. And yet when Lazarus died, Jesus wept with Martha and Mary. So he said, I want a solitary place. And he departed from thence by ship to a desert place, a solitary place, where he could be alone and reminisce and think and lament and grieve in the untimely and tragic passing of John the Baptist. Now when the people, watch this now, when the people saw what the Lord was doing and heard what the Lord had done, they followed him on foot out of every city throughout that entire area. The Lord said, I want to be alone, but they would not let him be alone. The Lord said, I must find a solitary desert place, but they would not allow him to find a solitary desert place. And so the multitude of people out of every city throughout the land commenced to follow Jesus uh, to his place of mourning because of the death of John the Baptist. Now in verse 14, and Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude that had followed him out of all the cities round about. And when he saw that multitude, he was moved with compassion toward them and he stopped his mourning. He gave up the idea of a desert place and commenced to heal all their diseases and all their sicknesses, we're told in verse 14. Now, the thing that I want you to note in that verse is the compassion of our Savior. Here's a multitude of people that pressed upon him and wouldn't let him be alone. Here's a Savior brokenhearted because of the execution of John the Baptist. And he said, I want a desert place. I want to meditate. I want to think. And I want to grieve in the passing of my brother, John the Baptist. But they wouldn't let him do it. And the more he sought the desert place, the more the multitude increased and followed him out of all the cities. And when the Lord saw the multitudes that followed him in that time of bereavement, he said, uh, I have no time for myself. I can't do that for myself. I'll give myself to them. And he turned and commenced to minister to the multitudes around about him. Now, it's important to grieve when there's a death in your family. It'd be an abnormal situation if you didn't. Uh, when mother dies, you can't help but grieve. When husband dies, if you're natural, you're going to grieve. When a son or daughter dies, you're going to grieve. When a neighbor dies, you're going to grieve. And naturally, the Lord, Lord was grief-stricken in the passing of John the Baptist. But there's some things more important than mourning and grieving. As far as service is concerned and ministry is concerned, that multitude was more important to our Lord than John the Baptist and his decease. And when he saw the multitude, he, he forgot his mourning and his uh, solitary place, and he commenced to heal them of all their illnesses and their sicknesses and their disease. That's just like the Lord. What a compassionate Savior he is to all of us. He looks upon you. He looks upon all of us as a group. He pities, God pities his children as an earthly father does pity his own children. 
There's not a dad in this building what doesn't have pity for his own children and pity for his own grandchildren. And any earthly daddy would go to the limit because of that pity that he has for his children and for his grandchildren to provide and to help in the time of crises. But as an earthly father pities, so does our heavenly father pity them that believe in him. As he looks upon us a long way from home in an unfriendly world, a beset by sin and temptation, aggravated by the devil and demons, and afflicted with a body uh, that's prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. God has pity upon us and concern for us. And I'm so glad that I can believe that and report that to you. When Jesus saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion and commenced to heal all of their sicknesses. If the devil ever comes to you and tempts you to believe that God doesn't care, uh, you've had problems, you've had trouble, you've had heartache, you've wept tears, and the devil whispers to you, God doesn't care. God's not occupied. You tell the devil he's a liar, and Jesus called him a liar before you did. And call him the father of all liars before you did. You tell him he's a liar, that God does love you. And that God is occupied with you. And that he is concerned about you. I'm convinced in my soul that in our Sunday school lesson today, when old Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and commenced to weep and pray, I'm convinced God was moved by the prayer of Hezekiah. And God did something about it and said, Isaiah, go back and report that he's got 15 extra years to live. He's not going to die. As I first reported, he's going to live 15 more years. The tears of Hezekiah moved the heart of God. Your tears move God. Your troubles concern God. Your afflictions concern the Almighty. And the day shall never be but what God doesn't have compassion toward the multitudes. You remember that. That's the kind of God we serve. Now, verse 15. And when it was eventide, the sun's going down. The shades of night are beginning to fall. All day long, the Lord sought that desert place and could, could not find it. All day long, the multitudes increased as they came out of all the cities around about and followed the Lord and Nazarene. And Jesus had been healing their sicknesses and praying for those all day long. And the shades are now lengthened. And the night begin, begins to fall upon that great conclave of people. And as it did, his disciples came and said to him, uh, This is a desert place. These folk are a long way from home. There, there's no village close by. There's no shopping center close by. There's no restaurant close by. These people are a long way from home. They're in a desert place. And they said, the time is now past. To send the multitudes away, said the disciples. That they may go into the villages and buy for themselves victuals, Or buy for themselves food. Send them away. The shades of night have begun to fall. Now, I don't know. I, I think I'd have to read between the lines. If I suggested to you that the disciples were a little bit impatient. Now, they might well have been a little bit impatient. They might have well known that the Lord wanted a desert place, a solitary place, where he could mourn the tragic death of John the Baptist. And I imagine when that crowd got larger and larger and more and more joined that multitudes, those disciples became more and more upset and more and more impatient with the multitude. And when they hanged around and just hanged around all day long, 
Until night was beginning to fall, their patience was wearing thin. And they came to the Lord and said, send this crowd away. It's going to be bad. If you don't get this crowd away soon, the night's going to fall and all these people will be left out here in this desert place without food. Now that's a normal conclusion. Now whether the disciples were more impatient than compassionate may be debatable. Uh, it might have been impatience rather than compassion. I don't know about that. The Bible doesn't say. With the Lord, it was not impatience but compassion. But with the disciples, they might have just wanted to get the crowd away from their grieving Savior. And so they said, send them away. The night is falling and there's no food. Send them away. Now I want you to watch what Jesus said. But Jesus said to his disciples, they need not depart. You give them to eat. They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. <laughs> and I imagine Matthew began to look over at, at uh, John and, and he said to himself, how in the world can we do that? I imagine Matthew said, we've got no food. We need to go to the village and buy for ourselves fiddles also. And John said, I don't quite understand that, fellas. Uh, he, he just said that we are to give them food. And we have no food to give that great crowd of people. And down in verse number 21, we're told that there were 5,000 men in that company besides the women and children. Now you can imagine there must have been maybe six or seven or maybe 8,000 people in that great crowd, great multitude that had emptied out the cities and villages and followed Jesus to that desert place. And now the Lord said, you need not send them away. Don't bother about sending them away. Let them let them congregate. Let them come on and stay with me. And I'll heal their sicknesses if they'll do that. You give them food. Don't send them away. You give them food. And they said to him, Master, we have no food. We have only five loaves and two fishes. Now, in one of the other Gospels, and by the way, this miracle is recorded in all four of the Gospels. In one of the other Gospels, we're told about a lad, just a lad of a boy that followed that multitude. I don't know why he followed the multitude. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe out of curiosity. He might have had a sick grandmother that wanted to be healed. I don't know. Uh, he might have followed because some of the other young fellows followed Jesus as he went to that desert place. We're not told why the lad followed Jesus, but we are told that he had five loaves and two fishes that his mama had fixed up for him for his lunch before he could get back. Uh, he seems to be the only person in the crowd that had that much forethought. The other people were so preoccupied by this dynamic Savior, this tremendous healer, this powerful healer, until they forgot about preparing food. They only wanted to be close enough to Jesus to hear his words or to be healed of their infirmities. But there was one lad that was for, had enough forethought to bring his lunch, and it amounted to five loaves and two fishes. And he gave that to the Savior. He gave that to his disciples. And that's what these disciples are talking about. When they said, Lord, we have only five loaves and two fishes. Actually, they had nothing. And all they had was that which belonged to a lad who had brought those five loaves and two fishes along. And this would not be enough even to mention. And ordinarily speaking, that's correct. You just would not even mention such a, a meal as that 
among 5,000 men plus the women and children. That would almost be presumptuous to even mention five loaves and two fishes. That wouldn't be a start. That wouldn't be enough for Peter, let alone the rest of the apostles and all the others. But they did report, Lord, we have five loaves and two fishes. That's all we've got. And Jesus said, all right, bring them to me. Now let's drive up a stake right there, please. Bring them to me. Now, if somebody in the crowd had had a lot of gold and silver, I mean, all they could carry in their pockets. I started to say totes in their pockets. But that would be too typical as a southerner, so I'll say all they could carry in their pockets. They had their, they had their pockets full of gold. And had they come to the Savior and emptied that gold out at the feet of the Savior, everybody would applaud and say, that's wonderful, that's great. This will be sufficient to buy food for everybody. But nobody brought any gold. Nobody brought any silver. Nobody had anything to bring but five loaves and two fishes. And when Jesus said, bring them to me, he meant bring just that to me. Well, what in the world could the Savior do with five loaves and two fishes, with 5,000 hungry men, and the shades of night commencing to fall? And all those children already whining about mama's knee, saying, I, I'm tired, mama. Pick me up, mama. Carry me, mama. I'm hungry, mama. I'm thirsty, mama. You ever heard a kid say that? Ever heard a grown man say that? <laughs> you sure have, all of us, haven't you? We've all said that. What in the world would five loaves and two fishes do in such a situation as that? I learn that whatever you've got to give to the Savior, however little it might be, God can use it. And if there's any lesson taught in this great miracle of the feeding of 5,000 people, it's the lesson that though your gift may be small like the widow's might, or like the lunch of the lad, five loaves and two fishes, you need not hesitate to bring that to the Savior. And God can use it. You know, sometimes me and you say to ourselves, well, if I could sing like Brother Aiken, or if I could sing like Sharon sang a moment ago, or if I could play the instruments, or if I could, uh, if I could do something great, if I could be the superintendent of the Sunday school like Brother Harold Tuck, or if I could be a great leader among the people in the congregation. No, that's not what God's looking for. God has his leaders and I rejoice in his leaders. I thank God for those that feel that place of leadership and who have the talent and the ability to step forward and lead God's people. But God's not looking for that. He's looking for the man or the woman or the boy or girl that has five loaves and two fishes. And who will say, Lord, this is not much, but if you can use it, it's available. And if you'll say that to God, they're just in it telling what the Lord could do with you in your life. If you can say the Lord to the Lord, it's not much, Jesus, but it's available. We need to present ourselves as available to the Savior. You know, I look back at my own life and, and I look at the lives of some of you that I've known intimately down through many years here at Tabernacle as we fellowship together. It's been a blessed experience. I've enjoyed being with you and fellowshiping with you so much. But I look at my own life and I say to myself, how in the world, why in the world would God ever call me to try to serve him in any capacity? You name it, brother. I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy, as this brother saying a while ago, to be the doorkeeper. 
I, David said, Lord, let me be the doorkeeper in the house of God. I can say, David, that ought to be my job. You're the sweet singer. You can play the harp. And you can write the Psalms and sing the Psalms. I can't do that. Let me be the doorkeeper. I'm not worthy of that. And not one of us are. And yet God can take a smoking flax and a broken reed and a crooked stick and use it to God's glory. You say, well, if I had millions, I, I'd serve God. I've had people come to me here once in a while and say, Brother Harold, you know what I'd do if I had a million dollars? And I say, well, don't think I do. What would you do if you had a million dollars? And they begin to tell me what they would do if they had a million dollars. They said, well, we'd pay off all the debts of Tabernacle. And they're sincere in that. We'd pay off all the debts of Tabernacle. And we'd pay all the radio debts. And we'd buy our radio time on a lot of radio stations. We'd buy TV time for you. And uh, we'd just give you all the money you could use in getting the gospel out. And we'd send the missionaries around the world. If we only had a million dollars. Well, to tell you the truth, in 34 years, I have never met that man that had a million dollars. I wish I could meet him, brother. I'll tell you what. Wouldn't that be great if I could meet a man that has a million dollars? Step forward, brother. If you're here tonight, I'm sure anxious to meet you. <laughs> I've never met that man, never met that woman that had a million dollars that is willing to divide with me in preaching the gospel. Never. Now, maybe some men have, and I think some preachers have been blessed by having wealthy friends, but I've never had a millionaire become my friend. I mean, my bosom friend. Down through all these years, I've never had it, not to my knowledge. I've had men that have good money and make good money. Thank God for them. But I'm talking about a real wealthy person. I've never had one like that befriend me and my ministry. But you know what's kept us going? It's the dollar bills and the five dollar bills down through the years. Years ago, I received a letter from a little girl, just a child, early teenager. And she sent me an Indian head penny. And she said, this is all I've got. And I want you to have this Indian head penny. Well, I substituted another penny for that when I still have that Indian head penny. And I wouldn't take anything in the world for that Indian head penny that a little girl sent to me that heard my voice on the radio. Now, somebody said, well, if I had a million, I'd give that. No, God's not wanting the millions. He's wanting five loaves and two fishes, and most of us have that available. We can provide that, couldn't we? We can't provide a million dollars, and you may talk about what you would do if you could. But chances are you'll never be able to provide a million dollars. But all of us can say, Lord, here's five loaves and two fishes. And those disciples said, Lord, here it is. But what in the world can you do with this among so great a cloud of multitude, a crowd of people? What good would it do? Forget it. Send them on home. These five loaves and two fishes wouldn't even start to, to take care of the situation. But Jesus said, bring them hither to me. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. And I think I can do something with them. And I'm about to read to you what the Lord did to them. And did with them. You might discount it. You might say that's trifling. You might say that's nothing. But the Lord used his supernatural power to perform a supernatural feat in doing something with those five loaves and two fishes that I'm preaching about tonight that I want you to see God can use you. You provide the sinner, and God will provide the grace. And he'll use you if you'll make yourself available. And there's nothing in the world more precious that you could do 
than to make yourself available. A vessel meet for the master's use. Well, I can't do much preaching. I wouldn't be at all surprised if I'm not preaching to folk right now that ought to be in full-time Christian ministry. And you're hesitant. You draw back. And the reason you're hesitant uh, is because you say, my talent is small. My abilities are few. And my virtues are few. And I just can't produce. And I'm so small. And I'm so weak. Maybe God can't use me. You're the very one that I'm convinced God could use most if you made yourself available. The little lad said, here's what I've got. Take what I've got. You're welcome to it. And they took it and brought it to the Savior. Jesus said, bring it to me. Now, what did he do? Watch what he did first. He commanded, verse 19, that the multitude of people sit down together on the grass. Now, he did not start a revolution. Here's 5,000 hungry men plus a lot of whining children and a lot of hungry women. And nobody started the demonstration. Nobody started marching on Washington. And nobody criticized society. Nobody said we ought to join up with the communists. But this whole crowd of hungry people sat down on the grass at the command of the Savior in order, in quietness, in submission to the Savior. You know what America needs more than it needs socialism and communism? 10,000 times more, it needs God. And if America would be humble enough like this multitude to obey the Savior and sit down, stand still and see the salvation of God, we could see some other miracles, couldn't we? But when we feel hunger, pains hit our stomach, we start marching on Washington and we start complaining about the government or we start criticizing somebody else. Or we start a rebellion. We start a, a revolution. Well, that's not God's way. Jesus said to the multitude, about six or 7,000 people or more, sit down. And they sat down on the slopes of Galilee, the grassy slopes of Galilee on the grass. And he took the five loaves, verse 19, and he took the, five, the two fishes. What did he do when he had them in his hand? He looked up to heaven, lifted his head toward heaven, and as he did, he blessed that bread. He returned thanks for that bread. He said, we can't eat until first we've said, thank you, Lord, for that bread. So I can see the Savior with five little biscuits in his hand, five loaves, and two little fish. that must have been uh, about the size of two fingers, maybe. And he's got two little fish in his hand and five biscuits in the other hand. And he holds them up to God like old Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel and said, Lord, here's five loaves and two fishes. I want you to bless it. Now, I don't care how little your talents may be or how few your virtues may be or how weak your power may be or how small your money may be. What you've got ought to be held up to God and say, oh, Lord, bless what I've got. Brother Henry Porter and Brother Arthur came for me last night uh, down to the airport in Atlanta and brought me home. I left Cleveland, Ohio last night at, at uh, 10, 10 o'clock and got to Greenville at 3 this morning. But these boys brought me from Atlanta. Couldn't get into Greenville. I had to go to Atlanta, you know. Uh, if you ever start to heaven, you have to go through Atlanta from Greenville. No, no way to go anywhere except go through Atlanta. Wherever you go from Greenville, if you go by air, you have to go by Atlanta. We might have to stop off Atlanta in the rapture. I'm not sure about that. 
But anyway, I had to come to Atlanta, and those boys came down and picked me up last night. And we stopped at a little old hamburger joint coming up the highway. And we bought for ourselves a hamburger and a cup of coffee. Now, that's not a very sumptuous supply when a man drives like Arthur and Henry did uh, down to the airport to pick me up and then uh, 50, 60 miles back up the road toward Greenville. They were getting hungry, and so was I. And we sat at that restaurant with that hamburger and cup of coffee. It wasn't a great meal, but it satisfied the hunger. And we bowed our heads, and I said, Brother Henry, you thank God for this food. And Brother Henry prayed out loud. I didn't peep. I was tempted to peep. But I wanted to see what those, those waitresses were observing. I could imagine what that young lady was thinking that brought us those hamburgers. And before she could get away from the counter, or Henry started praying. And I wonder what, I didn't peep. I don't know what happened. But thank God for the privilege of thanking God for a hamburger. Just a hamburger. Not much, but you get hungry enough, you'll thank God for a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> or a hearty either one, brother. Or a homemade one as far as that's concerned. <laughs> you'll thank God. And you ought to thank God. Not one of you ought to hold any kind of an offering to God except you thank him for it. The lowest that God gives, the smallest that God gives ought to be blessed, you see. How dare you sit down at a sumptuous meal as you did today if you didn't thank God for that shame on you. You say, well, preacher, what will people think if I pray? It doesn't matter what people think. You ought to bow your head. I'm not saying you ought to stand up and say, everybody now I'm going to have prayer. Keep Stop eating. I'm going to have prayer. I don't think you ought to do that. I wouldn't recommend you do that. But you can bow your head at your own table. And you can say, Lord, there's a lot of people crowded around here, but I haven't forgotten about you. And I still believe you gave me this meal. It may not be much, but I'm thankful. And I want to say thank you, Lord. You can do that, and you ought to do that. Jesus thanked God for five loaves and two fish. Jesus not me, Jesus, who is the bread of life. Jesus, who is life. Jesus, who is God. Jesus, who could have spoken the word, and all the stones on the mountainside would have turned into loaves of bread. Now holds up five loaves and two fishes and blesses them. And thanks God for them. And we ought to learn a lesson from that point, my friend. And I hope you'll get it. Now what happened? He began to break it. He began to break it. And he gave the loaves to his disciples. And the fish to his disciples. And the disciples in turn gave the loaves and the fish to the multitude. Now when the Lord blessed that five loaves and two fishes, he started to break in those biscuits. I don't know whether he broke them in half or opened them up. They didn't have anything to go with them but the fish. But he broke those, those biscuits one way or another. And handed a piece to the disciple, and they broke it again, handed a piece to his disciple, broke it again, handed a piece to his disciple, broke it again, handed a piece to his disciple, and broke it again, handed a piece to his disciples, broke it again, and just kept on breaking. And every time he broke, he had none less to break. He just kept on breaking. Until he'd filled all the hands of all the disciples. And then he started breaking those fish in two. And those fish got bigger instead of smaller. Every time he broke them, he still had enough fish left to break it again. And he put that in the hands of his disciples. And he said to those disciples, now you take it and give it to these hungry people. 
when I see those disciples walk up and down on that grassy slope and give this man a piece of bread and this man a piece of a fish and this lady a piece of bread and another lady a piece of fish, a little boy a piece of bread, another boy a piece of fish, and they start eating that fish. I wasn't there, but I have a notion that was the best bread and fish you've ever eaten in your life. Had to have been good. Did it just come from the hand of God? It had to be good. And when God feeds you out of his hands, it's good food, whatever it is. I'll guarantee that. Those men say, I never have ate bread like this. This tastes like mom's bread. Those men said, I never have eaten fried fish like this. This is the best fish I've ever eaten. Just came back. Couldn't be any other way, boys. That's for sure. Had to be that way. And he kept breaking that fish until he had fed 5,000 people. Now I want you to note one thing. He didn't give the bread and meat to the people. He gave the bread and meat to the disciples. And they in turn gave it to the multitudes. I think there's a lesson there. Jesus could have bypassed his disciples. He could have said to those 12 men, you sit down here now and I'll show you something. But he didn't do that. He said, you come up here, stand by me and we'll do something. He didn't bypass his disciples. He recognized his disciples. And he put that bread in their hands and said, you now give it to the multitudes. And they gave it to the multitudes. Now, I think that lesson is very obvious. I believe God calls men to mediate, men to pastor, men to feed people, men to help people, men to counsel with people, men to win people to the Savior, men to baptize people. And I don't think it's proper ever to bypass God's called preaching. Jesus didn't ignore those disciples. But he said to the disciples, I'll give it to you now and you give it to the multitude. And a disciple worth his weight in salt will do that eagerly and gladly. Nothing thrills my heart more than me to be able to give you something. What I give you sometimes I think is so, so weak until I'm ashamed of myself. I wish I could be a better pastor to you than I have been. I couldn't ask for a better people to pastor, that's for sure. If I live to be an old, old man, I'll never pass to another church like Tabernacle. And I know it. And I'm not playing to the grandstands. If I know my soul, I'm speaking to you out of the honesty in my heart. Every once in a while, my, my wife says to me, if you and I passed in Tabernacle, what would we do? And she's not kidding either. She said, what, what could I do? She said, if we couldn't go to Tabernacle, where could we go? As if she's lost. For what to do if she couldn't come to Tabernacle? That's how my wife feels about you all. And I'm glad she feels that way about you. And I feel the same way. And every time God gives me something, if it's not much, if he gives me just a little bit, I can't hardly wait until I can get to the pulpit and give it to you. And I think you ought to pray that God will give me some bread and meat every once in a while. And if God gives it to me, I'll promise you, I'll do my best to give it to you. I think that's what God calls his pastors to do. And Jesus said, now you take this and feed these 5,000. And it says in verse 20, and they did all eat and were filled. I can see an old fella over on the edge of the crowd picking his teeth with a blade of grass he plucked out of the ground. You see him? And he's picking that piece out of his tooth and he's chewing that up. 
That piece that got in the cavity, he's gouging that out and he's now about to eat that piece in the cavity. And I hear another fellow say, I just never have eaten bread like that before. That was so good. Wasn't that good? Hey, man, wasn't that good? Hey, boy, who's your mama? <laughs> I imagine the boy said, it wasn't mama, it's that man that did that. <laughs> oh, yes. And they all did eat and were filled. I see them get up and stretch, begin to pat their stomachs. So I never have had a meal like that. That's as good as I've ever eaten. They were all filled. You know, when a man comes to the Savior, it may be bread and meat, but it'll satisfy you. When you get to know the Lord and come to the Savior, you don't have to have sat, satin and silk and gold and silver. You don't have to have a mansion over the hilltop. When you come to God, a little meager affair with God is all right, brother. If you've got the Lord in your soul, it's all right, wherever you may be, under any circumstances. God makes the circumstances, doesn't he? Oh, yes. I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain. A lot of poor people in this world tonight. A lot of people that don't have what you've got, what I've got. But many of those poor people have God in their hearts. They may live in a little humble hovel down by the river somewhere, or over on the edge of the mountains somewhere, but they've got the Lord in their heart, brother. I've eaten in homes that I couldn't describe to you, but I felt and sensed the presence of God when I sit down at their tables. I was preaching down the lower part of South Carolina many, many years ago. And a dear lady, a widow woman, an old woman, I'm sure she's dead by now, said, come and eat at my house. And I said, I'll be glad to do that. And the pastor carried me. We went as far as we could in the car and parked the car on the side of the railroad and walked the railroad tracks to that woman's house. I don't know, we must have walked a mile, I don't remember, but we couldn't get to our house with a car. Parked it beside the railroad and walked the tracks to that woman's house and, and uh, she fed us that night with cornbread and turnip greens and black coffee and a little bit of uh, kind of bony fat pork meat and a little bit of rice. And that's, about all, that's all we had on that table, no no dessert, no ice cream, no, uh, no uh, strawberry cake uh, with uh, topping on it and a red cherry at the top. Brother Melvin will break this meeting up if I don't quit talking like that. <laughs> yes, sir. None of that. No nice refrigerator out of which you could bring the frozen foods, you know, and the frozen desserts. None of that. Little humble house with a flickering lamp providing the light, an oil cloth on the table, and homemade chairs I sat in. The oil cloth, I can smell it till now. The oil cloth has an odor, you know. You, how many of you remember oil cloth? Let's see your hand. Now, you young city dudes, you don't know what that is. <laughs> but oil cloth is what mama used to put on a table. She used to put it in her cabinets, you see. And uh, you, you went to the store and bought it by the yard, and she'd put it down on the table. You could smell it, especially when it was new. Had a good smell to it. And I ate off that oil cloth table, homemade table. And uh, I ate turnip greens and cornbread and a spoon or two of rice. And I don't care for rice, but I ate it anyway. And a little bit of pork, just a little piece or two of pork. That's all she had. But she had God in that home. <laughs> and I could sense the presence of God in that little humble house way down here in the lower part of our state. I can tell you many stories like that. 
Brother, when Jesus begins to break bread, you don't have to have strawberry dessert. Yes, he can satisfy you. He can fill you up and make you glad for the opportunity. And they did all eat and were filled. And what did they do? They picked up 12 basketfuls left over. How do you like that? I mean, he broke so much bread until the people couldn't eat it all. And every disciple had one basketful to carry home. And I imagine those disciples called the neighbors in and said, I want to give you a little bit of what the Lord gave us a whole lot of today. And their neighbors got a little taste of that miracle. Twelve basketfuls left over. Jesus didn't waste anything. Wasting is sinful. He didn't start off with much, and he wound up with more than he began with. But he didn't waste a bit of it, did he? Looks like he could have thrown the rest of it away, didn't have anything to start with. He threw nothing away. He picked up twelve basketfuls left over. And the disciples carried home, didn't have to cook for a week. They ate leftovers for a week. That's good eating sometimes, isn't it? I'm getting hungry. I better get this sermon over. And we're told in verse 21, And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Isn't that a fabulous story? The feeding of the 5,000. All right, now I've tried to draw a few lessons from it. One great lesson, and then I'll close. If we don't learn anything else, learn this, please, that Jesus is never in a dilemma. Those disciples were running around as if the world was about to come to an end when the shades of night were beginning to fall and 5,000 men plus women and children were standing around hungry. Those disciples said, what in the world are we going to do? And they began to wring their hands. They said, this is awful. What in the world are we going to do? But Jesus never gets in a dilemma. And I don't think he started getting in dilemmas in 1973 either. Jesus is never caught without an answer. He can always supply your needs, whatever it may be. You remember that. And whenever that need comes, you pray about it and tell the Lord. And he'll send meat to you like you sent it to Elijah. And he'll feed 5,000 as he fed these on the slopes of the Sea of Galilee. God's able to do it. May we bow our heads and pray. Our Father, we come to thank you tonight for such a Savior. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.